Welcome to The Protagonistas, a podcast that is centered on highlighting the stories and experiences of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color among communities of faith. Our conversations sit at the intersection of race, gender, sexuality, and spirituality. I'm your host, Kat Armas. Bienvenidos, friends. Today, I have a great conversation with the incredibly brilliant Bianca Mabute-Louis. Bianca is a brilliant East Asian American scholar and activist who has taught me so much through her social media zines and her newsletter, which you totally should subscribe to. In fact, in her recent newsletter, she asks some questions for reflection, which I thought I'd ask you, friends, as you prepare to listen to our conversation. So in our conversation, Bianca and I chat about her religious background and how it differed from that of her family's when she joined the evangelical church at a young age. We talk about her exodus from formal ministry and her deconstruction, if you will. We also chat about imagination and justice work, whether through creative avenues like one of my favorite things about Bianca, which is her powerful zines, which makes theoretical concepts and ideas that are mulled over only in academic spaces accessible and digestible to the rest of the world. I love her zines and the heart behind it because a lot of the time, many of us engage with theories and we theologize and we talk about things that many folks or many people within average spaces and communities, our neighbors and abuelitas who didn't go to seminary or who don't have the time or energy to engage with quote, high level books that aren't particularly practical or digestible or inviting for further conversation. In many ways, a lot of us, even in justice spaces, are talking to ourselves. I often wonder how we can make our theology accessible to all because we do a disservice to the world when we are having conversations the majority of the world cannot understand. And so to this end, Bianca shares her journey within academia and her PhD focus, which leads us to reflect on the recent conversation surrounding anti-Asian violence, specifically that which has been targeted against Asian American elders. She shares how Asian Americans have been expressing how painful these attacks are, but also how the silence surrounding anti-Asian racism adds another level of erasure and violence. Bianca shares about how Asian Americans showing up and naming their grief and their pain is powerful, liberating, and healing. Because the expectation and norm for our Asian American siblings has been to be quiet about them, to contort and to modulate how they feel and how they respond. But we know that in order to seek justice and equity in this world, we must allow and encourage and offer space for those hurting in our midst to grieve. We know that liberation for Asian Americans is liberation for us all, and we must continue to imagine what it would look like to divest from our existing systems and to look for ways that sustain more holistic change. As Bianca says, we must rewrite a new story. And so today, as you listen, friends, I invite you to imagine a new story, a new future, God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as you listen, I want you to think about these questions that Bianca has posed for us. First, what are your reactions to the surge of anti-Asian violence targeting Asian American elders? Do you feel numb? Do you feel unaffected? These are also reactions to pay attention to. How do you feel seeing Asian Americans speak out against the racism in their community? How do you feel seeing allyship from non-Asians speaking out against the racism in their community? And how does the recent surge of anti-Asian violence shape how you understand your own racial identity and experience in the US? How does it shape how you engage with the larger Asian American community? What do you dream of seeing more of? I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, friends. And welcome to the Protagonistas. 
Bianca, thank you so much for being with me today and for chatting with me. Um, like I told you, I love learning from you and following you on Instagram. And so I'm super excited to chat with you today. So I want to start with, or if you first want to introduce a little bit about yourself, and I always like to ask my guests um, a little bit about their spiritual background, you know, how your spirituality or your understanding of the divine has transformed throughout your life. Um, yeah, from when you were a kid until now. Sure. Well, I'm really glad to be here with you, Kat. And yeah, so uh, I'm Bianca. Um, I'm currently in Houston. I moved here with my partner in August to start a PhD program in sociology. But before that, um, I was living in Oakland for about 12 years. That's where I went to college and spent my most formative years. Um, And my time there, I guess I'll go backwards. Uh, and then to childhood later. But my um, my time in Oakland was spent for many years in evangelical ministry, where I worked for InterVarsity uh, at Mills College. And then other chunks of time, I was a youth organizer. I taught Asian American studies uh, at different um, Bay Area community and state colleges. Um, I got my master's from the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State. So Um, That time was really rich and very formative for me in terms of just uh, one, becoming an adult, (laughs) but two, really, you know, having the city and its politics um, and its community really shape my values and who I am. Um, And I guess before that, originally I'm from Los Angeles area, uh, from San Gabriel Valley, which um, people who are familiar with that area know that it is an ethnic enclave with predominantly Asian and um, a handful of Latinx immigrants. You can get away with living in San Gabriel Valley and probably never learning English, which is one of the greatest things about it. Um, and so I grew up around a lot of people who looked like me in my neighborhood. Um, but where I went to school was um, in Pasadena. It was this very kind of elite, white, <laughs> upper class, educated private school um, where there were other Asian Americans and people of color. But um in terms of socioeconomic status, and again, just educational background of the families that went there, a lot of times I felt pretty out of place um, socially as someone who um, my families didn't have jobs that looked like my friends' parents' jobs, or I'm the first in my family to go to college, but that was something I was really ashamed um, to tell people <laughs> because that was not the experience around me. Um, and so, you know, that kind of duality was part of my childhood. And then your question about faith and spirituality. Um, So I grew up not in the church. My mom is Buddhist and still is, uh, and she still practices. And so I grew up going to the temple with her once in a while. And then my dad um, is kind of nominally Catholic because of colonialism and Catholic schools um, in Hong Kong where they came from. And so that's kind of my background, but it wasn't until high school when my best friend um, invited me to her Chinese Baptist church, Southern Baptist church. And I went to check it out. And um, given, you know, the context I shared about my school experience, going to the church was the first time where um, I was around people who looked like me, who were from my neighborhood. We had very actually kind of similar stories, it felt like. Um, So I found a lot of belonging in that church. Uh, I was I like dove deep in, I did like youth group. Uh, I was there like three days a week, Um, like our summer missions trips, what else? Sunday school, all of it, right? And I I felt really supported there. Um, 
I had a lot of questions about faith. And I remember in the early years, I'd ask my Sunday school teachers, like, why is there slavery in the Bible? <laughs> or like, what's with all this stuff around like LGBTQ people? And I remember my questions being um, received well, for the most part, where I, I was... Um, I wasn't like ostracized or anything for, for being inquisitive. But at the same time, I wanted to belong in that space. And it was also very clear what their politics were, right? So around that time, Prop 8 was happening in California and they were not political about anything, but they were very political about gay marriage. Um, and so that was very formative. And um, yeah, so that's some of my spiritual background. I'm sorry, I, I like don't tell stories in a linear way. <laughs> But neither do I. <laughs> time is a construct anyway. So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of my my spiritual background. And then in college, I was very involved with InterVarsity to the point where I joined staff uh, after college, like I said earlier. Um, and again, a huge source of cultural and spiritual belonging for me. It was my whole community for the most part. Um, but when they came out with their LGBTQ policy, um, as non-affirming and asking all staff who did not comply to basically fire themselves. It, the language was all really weird, um, but I really could not align. Um, and for myself too, as someone who was not at the time, I did not understand myself to be fully heterosexual. And so I was very much questioning my own sexuality on top of my theology at that time. I mean, it, it got to a point where it was really toxic. And so I had to make the difficult choice to leave and it was very traumatizing. <laughs> and I'm um, summarizing it all really quickly here, but um, since then, it has been a very rich time of just deconstruction, like a lot of folks on your podcast and you, um, I'm aware of. Um, and yeah, just figuring out what faith and spirituality mean in this in this right. stage of life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of that. Um, I want to go back and just kind of ask some follow up questions. So when you first you said that your mom is Buddhist. Um, and so when you first, I guess, transitioned to or, you know, got into the, the evangelical ish church, the Chinese Baptist church and that sort of theology, what was that transition like? Like, how did your mom receive that? And um, how did that how did you understand sort of like both of those worlds at that time as a young girl, I'm assuming? Yeah. Um, my parents at first were kind of worried I like was in a cult because I was spending so much time there and they were like, you need to focus on school. That's the most important thing. Um, so we had a lot of arguments about how I was, how and where I would spend my time. Um, but they were very supportive. My parents actually went to church for different parts of that time too in high school with me. And, um, but it was just really not for them. But yeah, it was it was balancing, I guess, these two different worlds and like developing this new identity and belief system for myself um, and, you know, really immersing myself in the community. And I think at the time as a teenager, I probably felt more angsty, like they don't understand. <laughs> right. Um, that's just typical of being a teenager. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, looking back, they were so supportive. And when I decided to get baptized, they were really supportive. When I joined InterVarsity staff, they questioned again whether I was in a cult because again, like they just ask so much of you. Um, right. And looking back, I'm like, was I? You know, I don't blame you for that question. Um, and so there were, you know, some rifts there of just becoming your own adult and make and you know, in InterVarsity, you have to fundraise your own salary, which is really asking for money is really taboo in a lot of uh, communities of color and in general in our society. And so that was right. really hard, but. Yeah, yeah, I can totally relate to that. Because, um, you know, my family, well, 
they're culturally Catholic, um, but never, you know, into the very like, you know, church all the time sort of thing. And so when I, I was the same way, like I was all in um, mm-hmm. and yeah. And I, I actually, I reflect on this a lot because I felt like I was really alienated from my family and I wasn't spending a lot of time with them because I was spending so much time at church and, yeah. you know, and then they also thought I was in a cult, you know, they were like, why, you know, like you can spend time with us or, you know, everything yeah. became about like all my conversations became about like evangelizing yeah. them or like, you know, yeah. um, and so that was something that I've been, you know, also that I well, I mean, not right now at this moment, but that I had to deconstruct for a while is just like mm-hmm. the view I had of my own family. Um, yeah. So that stood out to me when you said that, because I was like, man, I, I don't hear that a lot of like, younger people who, um, you know, kind of do their own thing spiritually, and then are trying to make sense of that, you know, those both worlds um, with their family. So yeah. Yeah. Um, and so since you left InterVarsity and you've been deconstructing, what has, a, you know, a little bit of your deconstruction journey um, look like, or where have you sort of met God um, within that journey? Yeah, um, I think during that time, as I was deconstructing and leaving InterVarsity, um, really my academic community and kind of activist community became the places where I found that spiritual belonging, I think, in the beginning. Um I, I sought out, I was very blessed and privileged to, to be in the Bay Area during this time where there's like a niche group for everything, right? So I found this organization that uh, was comprised of LGBTQ API um, people of faith, most of them Christians. Um, and so that was, a, it's called Network on Religion and Justice. And I still keep in touch with a lot of folks uh, from that network. And um, so that was really important for me to see like, like, oh, there are people who have left this evangelical world and have a thriving spirituality and faith life and personal life. Um, it was really important for me to have, to kind of like have these new role models, right? Because my previous role models from university, I'm like, I, don't, I can't look at you the same anymore. <laughs> um, but to have these new role models, these new pastors who identified as genderqueer, who were like teaching from the same Bible, but through such a different lens, uh, so that was really powerful for me. And then, and I just all, I think like, I felt very empty not being able to do ministry with students anymore. And so when I was at that time, I was also in graduate school and I joined this teaching co- cohort called PEP, um, which teaches ethnic studies at different high schools. And so teaching kind of became um, that outlet that I wanted to have for ministry and being able to mentor and invest in people. Um, so I feel like God really met me in those spaces because I didn't have to explain who I was or I didn't have to like justify why I belong there. But it was just like, yeah, we have these similar identities or interests and like, let's get to work. Right. <laughs> like we don't have to talk about theology or whatever. Um, at that time, I also um, did join a an affirming church in Oakland called Oak Life, which was a really great community for me to be part of. I feel like part of the deconstruction was learning to just be in a community and not have to like fix it or challenge it. Um, I think from InterVarsity and feeling like I had to really push for a certain, I don't know, inclusivity. I, I kind of internalized this idea of like needing to be a martyr. And I think a lot of people feel that way. A lot of maybe minorities in these predominantly white spaces feel that way. And so when I got to Oak Life, it was like, it's really not perfect. Um, but I felt like what God was inviting me to do was just to like rest and exhale and to let things be imperfect. But like, I didn't need to fix everything. 
Um, I was still overly involved as like, I don't know, I'm kind of just like a busybody, but I feel like that's part of, been part of my deconstruction is to know that I don't have to be everywhere all the time, that as much as God uh, empowers and wants me to take on different struggles, God also gives me permission to breathe, <laughs> to disengage too. Um, that's so good. Yeah. Like lean into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, God desires you know that you rest as well, and that you be you and in your fullness of you-ness. And so um, that's good. I'm so happy that you found that. Um, so I want to ask you a few questions about. Um, well, first of all, I want to ask you about zines. I know that that's like sort of something that you sort of your thing, I guess, or something that you do, um, a creative outlet. And so yeah, if you can talk to me about zines, what are they? How'd you get into them? Uh, what do they mean to you? Sure, yeah. Um, hmm. It's funny, because in the Bay Area, there's actually like a very uh, thriving like zine community. They'll do like really? changes. It's really cool. And like people will have their own tables at these festivals where they like... Oh. Have all this. I was never part of that, um, I, but I always was like someone who appreciated that community and that scene. And and I felt like you know I understood you know zines are a way that people are like publishing, self publishing, and like um, being able to do political education that we're not going to get in schools or from the media. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the I think political history of a lot of zine making. Um, and in terms of how I got into making that, well. Um, I think in general, I've always been a, a person who likes to try different creative things. And in the classes I taught, I always had some kind of creative project or we would do a collective zine making time in my classes. And so I, but I didn't start making them regularly and posting them publicly until quarantine um, because as like a busy body anxious person, I just didn't know what to do with myself right. and a lot of people. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm going to set a daily like creativity hour for myself every day at two o'clock. Wow. That's my thing. And every day from two to three, I would try to make something. And, and, and then that turned into basically like every day I'm going to make a zine trying to process like the nonsense going on in our news cycle. Right. Um, so that's how it started, I guess. And I don't have time to have a, as consistent of a creativity routine now, but um, I think I, I've con- I have continued to try to make them to process what's going on in the world and in my heart, um, but also to just kind of, I guess, challenge myself to like, uh, as, as a form of storytelling, um, and I guess right now it's kind of evolved into like, I'm, I'm in graduate school, I'm learning all these very theoretical concepts um, that could be really helpful for our communities. And so right. I'm exploring how to use this um, medium as a way to communicate these high level theories in a way that is accessible and relevant to people. Yes, yes, I love that. I think that's what stood out to me so much is that you are communicating these things. Um, and as someone who, you know, I love academia. And so as someone who's reading all these things and thinking about all these, like you said, theoretical things, I'm like, man, like, I wish that, you know, everybody can can have access to this. Um, and so I just love that you're using that platform to do that. I mean, I think that that is um, what we're supposed to be doing. And I think it's brilliant and it's creative. And I mean, it's clearly speaking to a lot of people. And so, yeah, I love that. Hey, everyone, it's Kat. As a space for highlighting the stories of Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, this podcast has been important for so many listeners. And I would not be able to do this podcast if it weren't for the support of every single one of you. But beyond listening, you can help the show in other ways too. The first is obviously by heading over to your podcast app of choice and writing us a review. 
It helps the show greatly and doesn't cost you a dime to do it. That said, if you do have the funds to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas to learn more how your dollars can go to help fuel the growth of this podcast. For just a cup of coffee per month, you can keep this important work going. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the protagonistas. Um, so with that, talk to me about your academic journey. Um, talk to me about your journey to and within academia. Um, and there's something actually that you mentioned as I was looking through your, your stuff, you know, just preparing for this interview. And as I was reading, I, I, you had said something where you said that you felt affirmed by your professors. And I, I love that. And you had said how, you know, that sort of um, was like a positive experience for you in academia. And that spoke to me because like, I enjoy studying in, in higher ed. And I found similar experiences, like I've been very affirmed as a woman, as a Cuban woman, um, you know, in academic spaces, but I know that these spaces weren't created for us in mind, right? And so it sort of feels like this juxtaposition between, you know, it's been... I don't want to use the word healing because I don't know if it's been a healing space, but it's been a helpful space for me. But at the same time, I know that it wasn't created for me. And so can you just talk to me about, yeah, your journey to and within that and just your journey of being affirmed and sort of wrestling in this, maybe this in-between sort of space or this um, space that, that is intimidating and new, but also has been maybe helpful for you in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I'm just thinking about your question. Um, no problem. I, I, in terms of like, yeah, my academic background, I I think what's important in the, all this context to me is um, that like throughout um, my most formative years of childhood and high school and even parts of college, I felt the opposite of, of affirmed. Basically, I felt very dumb <laughs> um, and I felt like very behind my classmates and um like a fraud for a lot of my time in all of these privates in in the private schools. And I don't want to be like, oh, I'm so oppressed because I had so much privilege being part of these private schools. And they really prepared me academically very rigorously. And at the same time, um, because of like the social non-belonging, I I felt a lot of imposter syndrome. Um, But I do think once I found ethnic studies and spaces in the academy that folks of color have carved out for us, recognizing that as an institution that they can be really hostile to students of color. Um, I felt really affirmed in those spaces. And it really is because of like our foremothers and forefathers, right? Who like, you know, put their lives on their on the line and protested and organized to make sure that, you know, protected spaces for BIPOC communities exist in these institutions. And so it was in those spaces that I felt like, oh, like I have something to offer (laughs) and I have something to say finally (laughs) Um, and people will listen. Um, And so, yeah, that time at SF State was incredibly healing because all my students and all all my uh, professors and all my peers were folks of color, Um, which is just like such a powerful experience to have in the first place. And, um, And even in my undergraduate time, you know, finding spaces for first generation students where again, like your voice is welcome and affirmed here and your process, you have not arrived, but like, it's, it's good, you know, and that's just not what I experienced, for example, in um, a lot of evangelical spaces. Um, And so your question about like the dichotomy. Yeah, I, I think now I'm at more of like a fancy elite 
<laughs> PWI, a predominantly white institution. And um, I do feel supported, but I do feel a big difference <laughs> in this institution from where I came from uh, in the Bay Area and at SF State. And I don't know, I'm constantly aware of the fact that like, a lot of times people in the South don't really think about race outside of black and white <laughs> or like people don't always expect a Asian American woman to be here to wanna do like race and racism scholarship. Um, and so I'm aware of like, or of that experience and it can feel a bit lonely, but at the same time, I, I feel like I have been so blessed and privileged to be supported in all of those other spaces that I feel like um, I have the tools <laughs> to, and I have the community and uh, community of allies and people who support me um, to, to make the most and get the most out of my current experience. Mm -hmm. Awesome. I love that. And so what made you decide to uh, pursue higher ed? Oh yeah. Um, well, I never, because no one in my family really did graduate school. I never thought about that, but um, right. I really, you know, for my master's in Asian American studies at SF State, I, I fell into that program because I really needed an exit strategy from InterVarsity and I didn't know what I was gonna do next. Um, so Russell Jung, who's a professor there and is an amazing community activist, um, he talked to me a lot about the program um, and I guess kind of recruited me in. And so I, I really just kind of fell in accidentally, I think, I don't know if that sounds weird, um, but it was there where, where again, like we said before, where I realized like, oh, I can be a scholar and there are other scholars who look like me and who have similar backgrounds as me. And so it was there when I even began to play with the idea of doing more schooling. Um, I took a few years off though, to do organizing and youth work in the community. But ultimately I just felt like um, I wanted to do more. And I, I had more intellectual questions that I, I didn't get to fully answer in my master's program that I'm not fully getting to answer in the community work as important as it was. And I just had this itch, I guess, to like keep writing and reading and being an academic community. Um, and what really was the push though was a few different factors, but one of them um, was um, the late Don Mabalan, who is a Filipina historian who I didn't get to take a class with her, but I was in trainings with her and she is just, has published a lot of really seminal, incredible work on Asian American history. Um, as I was thinking about these questions of graduate school, she passed away very unexpectedly. And I knew that she, I had heard that she still had, you know, manuscripts she didn't get to publish. And it was really at that time when I was thinking like, yeah, like what am I afraid of? Um, life is short. I have manuscripts in me that I would have published one day, you know, and really, um, feeling like I really wanted to honor the people who have come before me by doing my best to continue in their footsteps and continue the work. Mm -hmm. Amen. That's beautiful. Love that. So what is your PhD focus? Like, talk to me about what you're focusing on um, right now. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a program in sociology and my focus broadly is on race and religion. And I'm interested in how um, religion, particularly Christianity, shapes how Asian Americans understand their racial identity, how it shapes web, how they understand or don't understand structural racism, um, how it impacts their political engagement. Um, and I'm really interested in that question with ethnic 
heterogeneity and ethnic variation amongst the Asian American label. And I think we saw in the last election, like, you know, th there's a lot of limitations to, to pan-ethnic terms like the Latino vote or the Asian American vote. People are like, this was so unpredictable. But for us, we're like, this is not unpredictable. Exactly. In our communities, like it's a big duh, right? Um, but in terms of research and policy, like we're still very much treated like a monolith. And so, you know, I hope that my research can kind of highlight the nuances in my community um, in order to make better policy so that, you know, people can realize again, like the big duh, that we're not a monolith. We feel differently about these things, but really look at like the political, the different political histories amongst our different people, um, the different socioeconomic statuses, the different ways that different Asian groups are racialized um, and how that again, all plays into how they interact with race and religion. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so good. Um, that's actually something that I was just recording for uh, my, my recap episode for this week is just like, how so many white and even white liberals, and white progressives, you know, they want to be like, wow, you know, I cannot believe that so many Latinos voted, you know, conservative. And it's like, well, yeah, a lot of Latinos have been voting conservative for a long time. Like that's just, you know, been the history of who we are. And I think, um, yeah, it's just, I, I love uh, when people within their own communities seek nuance and, and fight for nuance and keep, you know, um, pushing that conversation forward um, because, you know, we definitely need to keep moving that conversation forward. Uh, we are definitely, a lot of us are very tired of, be, of being put into these broad categories. And so, yeah, that's so good. That sounds so great. Um, so you mentioned that much of your work, as you were talking about now, but I'll read a little um, excerpt that you said about some of the stuff that you're doing, and I would love for you to elaborate a little bit on that. Um, you say, much of my work has been about helping Asian Americans reframe their experiences of discrimination as symptoms of white supremacy to ultimately motivate alignment with movements like Black Lives Matter that work to dismantle white supremacy and anti-Blackness. Um, so yeah, I'd love for you to speak on that. How do you do that in your work? And what, what are some of the things that you are finding as you're doing some of your research? Um, yeah, I think even like before reframing or giving people like um, an analytical lens, I think I've realized how um, it can be really hard for Asian Americans to even name that they've been racialized in this country and at times racialized unfairly. Um, or have experienced discrimination and racism. And I think part of my work feels like it's about giving people permission to own and name and grieve that these things have happened, that, you know, there's pain being part of the diaspora and um, having an immigrant narrative and receiving xenophobic uh, sentiments. Um, but there's also, and, and so there's like real discrimination that happens that goes unnamed. And then there's also kind of like, um, there's this author, Kathy Park Hong, and she calls this minor feelings. There's this kind of like dull melancholia that comes with just being someone that's othered in this country that is even less so named. Um, and so I feel like for me, a lot of my work wants to be about giving not just Asian Americans, but just anyone who is othered or racialized in this country space to kind of air that and name it. Um, because I think there's so much shame in 
in saying that that exists or that's something that we feel. But I also think there's a lot of like weird oppression Olympics where we're like, well, this isn't as bad as X group or this isn't as bad as like, you know, what happened to blank, right? Um, and we gaslight ourselves into thinking that what we experience is not important when actually like there's room for all of it. <laughs> and uh, we don't really do anyone a service by just swallowing our pain. <laughs> um, or there's a term in Chinese, Chinese called like swallowing your bitterness. There's, that really doesn't help anybody. Um, but actually when we bring these things to light, that's when we start to get free. And again, it's not about saying that we have it worse than anyone, but it's just about naming, like we all experience oppression and exclusion in different ways. Um, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, so that's part of it is, is like the healing work of doing that. Um, oh, and I think like, yeah, framing those experiences as symptoms of white supremacy. I think, um, I think part of that is wanting to move us, wanting to move us beyond black and white paradigms of allyship. So a lot of times, I think like Asian Americans, when we, when you know, last summer when Black Lives Matter, the movement was very much heightened, and even in 2016, um, I heard and even felt within myself Asian Americans feeling like we didn't really know. <laughs> how to come in, right? And so a lot of us just kind of defaulted to these, again, black and white bar uh, binaries and these paradigms for allyship that are really for white people. Um, and assuming that we come in as kind of like neutral allies, like we don't come in with any of our own racialized history. Um, but as Asian Americans, I think it's important to situate our experiences in the context of white supremacy because then we understand that you know, our liberation and our partnership with these movements is about also us getting free, that we have a stake in these movements because of the historical and the ongoing violence being done to our communities, that we're not just these like neutral actors who like want to be good allies. Of course, we do want to be good allies, but also like this is also our, the fight against racial injustice is also our fight. Um, and you know, white supremacy depends on anti-blackness in the ways that it depends on xenophobia and colonialism and orientalism and all of these things that have impacted our communities. I, I love what you said. And I do think that um, it is so important for all of us to be able to name the the spaces that we sit at and to name the pain that we, that we all hold um, and not in such a way as to silence someone else, but as to fight for the same common, you know, for, for, the, for the common good and to fight for, we're fighting for the same things for the liberation of us all, like you mentioned. And so I really love that. I love that way that you frame that. Um, and in one of your last, uh, or one of your most recent posts, you talk about writing a new story in black and Asian solidarity. Um, can you talk to me a little bit more about this new story, you know, expand on this idea of a new story? Yeah. Um, so, you know, to kind of situate it in context, this is in response to the heightened anti-Asian attacks um, that particularly our elders have been experiencing, actually not only in the Bay Area, but in other places as well. Um, and, you know, what's really complicated about these attacks that is that in the surveillance cameras, a lot of the perpetrators um, are Black folks. Mm -hmm. And that makes it really complicated because of the ongoing historical tensions between our communities um, mm -hmm. that has already existed. And so in response to that, a lot of, I've seen a lot of Asian folks in our grief um, have turned to really anti-Black statements and repeated a lot of anti-Black stereotypes such as stereotyping everyone as violent and criminal um, and calling for more policing, which of course we know is inherently anti-Black. 
Um, yeah, it's been really messy. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and so that's kind of the old narrative, right? That like, there are these attacks happening. So let's treat the perpetrator, everyone who looks like the perpetrator, like a monolith and, um, you know, kind of like self-preserve in this defensive and offensive way. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of folks have called out how that is really unhelpful. Um, why, and, you know, kind of problem posed the question, like how do we put, you know, honor our grief and the pain of what we're seeing and even the very visceral physical responses we have to these very violent videos. How do we honor that grief, push for accountability that needs to happen, but in a way that is not expressing and furthering anti-blackness and is not calling for more policing from these right. systems that don't actually care about us, right? And so, you know, these conversations have brought in um, thoughts on restorative justice, on mutual aid, on basically, you know, other forms of support that community members have always created for each other, where we can care for each other and protect each other outside of the systems that, um, that exist. And so, your question was, how are we writing a new narrative? I think that is one way we're writing a new narrative where, mm -hmm. you know, we're pushing back again against the call for more policing, not to say that the crimes are not taken seriously, but really grieving those, but also like more policing is not the answer. I, I think right. maybe one thing that could be helpful is if I actually share a personal example. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have been a victim of a crime and of a violent crime. And in the aftermath of it, it was, and it, this was in Oakland, and it was really complicated because the perpetrator um, was a non-white person. Mm. And in the moment, we called the cops because we had no other choices, right? Or that's right. what we felt like. There was no mm. like community um, emergency line. Although there are mm. in certain communities, there was not one that we were connected to. Mm. Um, and my partner and I, like, we really, it was really hard. We prayed and talked with community. We really thought hard about um, even the idea of pressing charges. Mm -hmm. Right. And the police were like, well, why are you doing a report if you're not going to press charges? This whole thing is pointless. But right. for us, it's like what comes out of pressing charges? What you like catch these people, um, mm -hmm. they do their time, but that doesn't change anything. Right. It, right. My ideal world is that actually I could sit down with them and I could share how they hurt me and I could hear their story of what compelled them to do that. That mm -hmm. is actually my ideal world. And we could just like sit down and have a mediated conversation. I know it's, it probably sounds totally unrealistic, but like, right. I do think, you know, that's the kind of imagination we need to be having um, mm -hmm. instead of just immediately saying, we need more policing, we need to lock them up. Because again, just to like, we need to pose the question, well, who does that actually serve? Um, and what change will that actually bring to our communities? I don't think locking anyone up changes the fact that there's anti-Asian sentiment, right? Mm, yeah. um, and so anyways, I think one way that we're re rewriting this story in this moment is really because of our, you know, abolitionist leaders who have been doing and thinking about this work much longer than I have, who have pushed these questions to the forefront to, again, force us to think about what would it look like to divest from our existing systems and reimagine how we can push for accountability and protection um, in ways that could maybe sustain more, I don't know, holistic change. Right. And that doesn't cooperate with the prison industrial complex. Right. Um, I don't have any answers to that, but I think that's one way I see 
I see people rewriting a new story. Um, yeah. And secondly, like, I think it, I had a lot of anxiety putting that, that Zena because I also, you know, have internalized like, oh, my problems aren't as important as other people's problems <laughs> or like, mm-hmm. you know, I shouldn't really talk about this. Um, but I see a lot of Asian Americans really expressing how painful this has been and how um, the silence around it in particular, not only are the attacks painful, but the silence adds another level of erasure and violence that feels very familiar for Asian Americans. And so I think that is some of the grief that's being expressed. And to see it being expressed and to see Asian Americans showing up and naming these things is really powerful because the expectation and the norm has always been to be quiet about them. Right. And then lastly, like I do think a lot of non-Asian folks and Black folks in particular have responded to the call for solidarity. And I've seen Black people posting and initiating conversations with their communities about anti-Asian sentiment, um, which is honestly like, I need to take time to process that because Mm -hmm. um, it's really powerful to to see that. And it legitimizes and validates, I think, everything we've been saying that, you know, Asian Americans are not just honorary white people, but we have Mm -hmm. experienced exclusion in this country that, um, you know, is not, shouldn't just be dismissed. No, that's so good. Um, And I think that, yeah, you're right. Part of part of writing a new story is just simply starting with imagining, you know, what would that look like? Imagining what, um, you know, a, a, a different world would be and then living into that that imagination living into that future living into that reality um and i think that you know calling folks to that to that new imagination i think is re- really powerful and and i know a lot of people have responded to it well and um like you said you know there's been a lot of of calls for solidarity and um yeah and i'm i'm just so thankful that that you did post that zine <laughs> despite how nervous you might have been to do so um well i I don't have any more questions for you. I am just so thankful for your time. And I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would like to share or if you want to let folks know about where they can follow you or learn more about you and your work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> where people can learn more about my work. I'm um, on social media, Twitter and Instagram for the most part at Beyonks. Um, B E Y O N K Z. And, or you can search my full name as well that will uh, pop up. And um, if people are interested in more of kind of like the historical and sociopolitical context behind some of these things we talked about, I started a newsletter that comes out once a month where um, I go a little bit more in depth about the areas of research I'm doing and some of the stuff I'm learning. Um, The theme of the newsletter is centering Asian Americans in the national conversation on race, religion, and politics. And so if you go to any of my socials um, or even my my website, um, biancaml.com, you'll see a link to sign up for the newsletter. Thank you so much for listening to The Protagonistas. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review.